Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Tucson, and with us today is Roberta Schultz. Roberta is a singer, songwriter, teacher, and poet, originally from Grants Lake, Kentucky. Her poems and song lyrics have appeared in Women Speak, Volume 7, Sheila Na Gig, Panoplyzine, Riparian, Pine Mountain, Sand and Gravel, Cackalack, and other anthologies. Three of her chapbooks, Outposts on the Border of Longing, Songs from the Shaper's Harp, and Touchstones were published by Finishing Line Press. Her latest chapbook of poetry, Asking Price, was accepted by Workhorse Writers for their 2022 series. Underscore, also this year, from the Das Madras Press is her first full-length collection. Roberta, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Jeremy. Could you please start us off with a poem? Sure. I'm going to read something from my new collection. Um, I was on Facebook scrolling one day and saw that one of my friends had posted a poem from Maggie Smith uh, that began with a line from Basho. So I decided I would try that as my prompt. So it's just called Poem Begun with a Line from Basho. A cicada shell, it sang itself utterly away. Is that what they'll say when I plunge to earth? Wings stopped in mid-flight. It's true. I've labored in the dark for years, found my way out of tunnels in the mud, left behind so many husks. They crackle underfoot of the ones who never wait their turn, who rush toward the front, making the loudest sounds. A patient hawk hides in the pine with eye and ear attuned to shrieks, or solo fame. One swoop swallows standouts in flash of talon and beak, while those who sing in the chorus drone on, fall back to earth intact, sung out, echoed in code by fellow insects, scavenged aloft as holy on lacquered beetle backs. Oh, that's beautiful. I love the imagery in that. Wow. Okay. Um. So I, let's start talking because about you also do song lyrics, which I'm interested in songwriting. I think it's a, a fascinating discipline and you publish song lyrics as well as poetry and literary magazines. Where do you draw the line between the two? They seem to come from different places in my brain. Um, I've been writing songs my entire life or making up songs to uh, little poems that I would find in children's books. <laughs> it's just something I started doing as a very young person. And I've written songs my entire life. So poetry is something that I studied and did in college. And I was an editor to uh, the poetry anthology at, at Moorhead State University when I attended there. So I didn't do it as often, um, but I loved it. And there was music in it too. Um, then I taught high school for years and years and years. So I assisted other people <laughs> in getting their writing out there and didn't do much of it myself. So it's just like, it's something I've done at very, a whole lot at the beginning of my life um, and a whole lot since I've retired from teaching. But uh, songwriting I've done straight through. It's, it's just something I've always done. The difference seems to me uh, that music, actual music, um, notes, pitch goes with the songwriting, and that comes first for me, and then I try to find words for that. Whereas poetry, the words have to do everything, including sing. So, 
<laughs> that's very true. If you want musicality and language, you have to alliterate or rhyme mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, or at least meter and pace. Um, you you started as a kid writing songs. Yeah, I think the first song I ever wrote was a song for a dying insect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just made it up. It was like a little dirge you know, about bury him deep in the mounted mound or something. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of insect was it? I think it was an ant. <laughs> okay. You know, that's funny. The, my my daughter, her first uh, her first poem was about a worm. Yeah. <laughs> Some someone stepped on a worm, and it was so unceremonious that he that the, the kid picked out the worm and did it on purpose and he ground his boot into it and you know they were shocked by the action and felt like they the worm needed to be honored yes <laughs> so you said you yeah. took children's books as a as a child and you wrote song lyrics about the books themselves or i i remember reading all the mowgli stories i guess that's rudyard kipling i had that book when i was a child and there was a there was a, like a I guess they were either song lyrics or a poem that was in the story about a wolf and the only son. And um, I just remember making up a melody to that lyric that was in the story. And I thought, well, I really like this. There are lyrics here. It should have music. So I just made up a tune to some poetry that was in the middle of one of those Mowgli stories, the Jungle Book character. Yeah, that's really cool. So when you read something, did, does music... Do you find a rhythm while you're reading or does is the, does that come from another place? Well, the words already had the rhythm. I, well, I can give you an example. I went to a songwriting workshop one time and our prompt was we, we listened to um, Richard Corey by Paul Simon. He had taken the poem Richard Corey and, and written his own song about Richard Corey. So the teacher said to us, well, now I need you all to go and write about Richard Corey. And I, I looked at the original poem of Richard Corey, and I just said to him, um, Adam, this, this poem is already a song. He said, well, then it's your prompt to go write the music to it. So that I just went back to my uh, retreat room and wrote the music to the original poem of Richard Corey. It already had the rhythm in it. It already had a very song-like poetry so it was easy to put music to it okay do you do you think that when you like look at a poem and it's almost meter or it's almost song-like do you, do you immediately try to apply structure is that just a natural if process if there's a heavy structure in it already music just kind of comes sometimes like you know whenever richard Corey went downtown the people on the pavement looked at him. You know, it's there. It's already there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. So what's the difference in how a poem versus song lyrics are constructed? Like, do you find that there are certain techniques that overlap more than the other? Well, I'm real attracted in that Gregory Orr's temperament chart, you know, where you have, you can have music or narration or image or whatever in, in your poetry writing. I'm very attracted to the part of the chart where I put music into the words, like, you know, having assonance or having alliteration or having one of those devices. Um, I'm very attracted when I write poetry into trying to make the words make music. Yeah. Because because of songwriting, I think. And I think, uh, in turn, learning about that kind of music and writing poetry has really helped me choose better words for my song lyrics, choose so? better images. 
Yeah, because I don't know, because I've studied how to do um, music in poetry through those techniques like alliteration and assonance and, you know, all of that stuff that now I can pick better words for my songs as well. But I, I found out you can use those techniques in songwriting if you don't overdo it. Sure. You know, besides the end rhyme that's already there in most song lyrics. So are there not counting like the chorus because chorus by its own nature is repetition, but there are there certain things that are just more prevalent in songwriting? Cause I know you can get away with certain things in songwriting that you can't in poetry. Yeah. I find myself not being able to rhyme very well in poetry. I just, I mean, I know it's not the fashion for a lot of people to rhyme uh, anyway at this time in, in, in poetry, but um yeah, you can get away with a whole lot more rhyming and songwriting for sure, because that's the format. Uh, and you can always get away with a slight departure from the theme too, uh, for the bridge or, you know, for some other part of a song. You have your, your verses, your bridge can always just take you away for a minute as an aside and then take you back with the chorus. Okay. All right. And, and you were, you were a, a trained, you're, you're a trained health rhythms a trained health rhythms facilitator did i get that right yes <laughs> okay yes. <laughs> and they're they're drum circles like you you do it, it's they're wellness circles where you do rhythm and, and percussive uh exercises and you do it like all over kentucky and cincinnati how did you get involved and what wow. exactly does a <laughs> rhythms facilitator do <laughs> um boy that's a long story um <laughs> <laughs> I do. Um, I I sing a lot in a trio. I've sung in a trio with my sister and another lady for 31 years. And we have found that the last 10 years or so, we've done an awful lot of senior facilities. Mm -hmm. And we started working for a group called Creative Aging Cincinnati, where we would go into senior facilities and perform music for whatever reason or whatever celebrations they might have at nursing homes and uh, senior living. And uh, Creative Aging decided they really wanted to add this drum circle idea to their repertoire to have somebody trained in going in and doing wellness circles with seniors. That was the original thought. And they knew that in my trio, I had a native drum that I sometimes brought out and played in my trio. So they thought, well, since you already have a drum, you must be interested in learning how to do this. So they sent me to... <laughs> <laughs> so they sent me to training for health rhythms and health rhythms was developed by a music therapist who's also a fabulous drummer in Christine Stevens and Dr. Barry Bittman, who is a neurologist. They put together a protocol of steps you could do for an hour with people that actually help them to uh, be mindful, to be calm, uh, to get rid of stress and to feel better by the end of the hour. And there were certain steps that they go through to do this. Uh, some of the wellness steps are actually like a little bit like meditation. There's some guided imagery in it, but most of it is just drumming and learning how to play together and train and have some fun. So I went through the training and I really liked it. And I've been doing it since about 2009, uh, as you said, pretty much around the Cincinnati area and throughout Kentucky. Okay. And, and what were those protocols? Well, there's like a, a beginning step where you do a, a icebreaker, which is some kind of um, fun thing with shakers. 
there's a there's a wellness step where you concentrate on breathing um then we do it something called rhythmic naming where you actually drum out your name just to get introduced to the other people in the group and people find out pretty easily that by doing those things that drumming is not at all threatening and it's not scary and uh, they just jump right in and have a good time yeah and and what's the the logic behind the percussive side is it that is it like a heartbeat thing? Is it like a getting everybody into sync so they're on the same wavelength? Is it a mixture yeah, of things? Yeah, exactly. There's a there's a step called entrainment, and entrainment is to get people to actually start doing things together at the same time, or to make them fit so they feel like they're they're working together. So you're actually making music. Entrainment's really important in human behavior uh, to feel good, to feel good in your group, and to feel like you belong. So we really focus on that. That's the biggest step in health rhythms. And Dr. Bittman really wanted people who were afraid of making music to have a way that was non-threatening. He'd grown up with a lot of music in his life, and he didn't think it had to be a professional in order to enjoy making music in group. That was the whole um, impetus behind coming up with that protocol. That's interesting. And, and it, drumming is something anybody can do instinctively. Like, you don't have to know notes or chords or anything. Right, right. That was the thought behind it. That's really cool. Okay. Um, and I'm, I'm cheating a little bit. This is the Ohio Poetry Association's podcast, but you live in Kentucky. <laughs> I do. I'm cheating because you're in Cincinnati so much and you're involved, you're heavily involved in Ohio, uh, community writing, the, the, the Ohio community writing scene. What's the difference? Is there a difference? Is it just like empathy all around or what have you noticed? Well, if you live where I do six miles from downtown Cincinnati, Pretty much the state of Kentucky thinks I belong to Ohio anyway, <laughs> because Cincinnati is a large city and over here we're just a bunch of tiny little ones that are not all, you know, just South Cincinnati. Yeah. So um, yeah, that is where my, that is where most of my poetry community uh, exists is in Northern Kentucky and in Cincinnati, the greater Cincinnati area. I belong to a group called the, um, Greater Cincinnati Poetry League, you know, Writers League, and it's, you know, it is the whole tip of Kentucky and all around Cincinnati. So yeah, my community is there, and I do know an awful lot of people in, in Kentucky who also write, but they tend to be clustered around Lexington, which is a good 90 minutes from here, or around Louisville, which is, you know, another 90 minutes down the road the other way. Yeah. Is there is there a difference between because you're a part of the Kentucky Poetry Association? Yes. Um, is there is there a difference between like do you notice how the communities are set up or is is there? There seems to be a real cluster in in Kentucky around the Lexington community for for poetry. That's where a, a large number of the people who are in the Kentucky Poetry Society seem to be around the Lexington area, although there are also people from the western part of the state who belong to it as well. And they're very welcoming. Um, I just joined that not too long ago and because I thought, well, you know, I'd like to belong to my own poetry society and see how that goes. <laughs> sure. they, they have readings and, and they're very supportive. Cool. Is it, it, are the communities isolated? Like is, is Lexington different than the other clusters? I don't think they're isolated. Um, it's just that that's where most of the poetry community from Lexington would know each other. And most of the ones from Louisville would know each other. And I probably know more people from the Lexington community than I do from, from Louisville. Okay. Yeah. That's closer. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure. 
Um, so some of your poetry, I, I've been I've been looking up your poetry, and some of it describes your father's Native American heritage, and it contrasts against your mother's side, who you know your mother comes from, you know, rural whites who live in Kentucky, and you have a poem, "Thicker Than Blood," which illuminates your father's Native integration into white society, and like him laughing at the various things that we've got going on. Um, and there's, but there's also a need to illuminate this history to your mother through poetry. Cause you, that poem, that poem thicker than blood ends with you bringing her to a poetry workshop at the end of it. Um, so how did your ba parents' background shape your writing and, and you as a person? Um, my dad, especially, um, really valued education because he had very little. Um, I think he dropped out of school at 16 to join the Navy and fight in World War II. And that was the end of his formal education. I think he had maybe a year and a half of high school. Um, it, and so he's he was always really interested in how education could help his children and constantly surrounded us with books. And he would bring, he bought all kinds of classic books. He, he was, he wanted me to read, I read Poe by the time I was in the fourth grade and I brought a poem in uh, to my fourth grade teacher. And she said, I don't really know if you need to be reading that yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because of all the Gothic uh, content in the Poe uh, yeah, poems. But, yeah, it's stuff too. <laughs> yeah, my, but it, it was beautiful sounding. I liked the way it sounded. You know, I think the music in that really helped me. Quote um, the teacher, nevermore. Nevermore. <laughs> I think Annabelle Lee was the one I was really crazy about. I just liked the repetition and I liked the sound of it. And I yeah. think my dad must have read it to me a few times. And I thought, well, I like this. I'm going to bring it in and show it to my teacher. But she was kind of worried about me. <laughs> so he had a pretty big influence about um, the written word and me. And I write about him a whole lot because he tried really... He, eventually had dementia at the end of his life and he tried really hard to fight against that. I felt like he was a very, very smart man with limited education. So he was always trying to read his way through everything. And when he was fighting off dementia, he decided he would just read Shakespeare. <laughs> Even though he had no kind of training in Shakespeare, he bought a subscription uh, to Shakespeare here in, in Cincinnati and he went to the plays. And I basically started going to the plays just to go with him to see what he was finding out about Shakespeare since I was teaching high school at the time and teaching it a lot. And uh, it was really amazing to me that he had just taken on Elizabethan English all by himself. You know? <laughs> Well, that's crazy. And how did he, how did he respond to it? Did he acclimate? Yeah. Yeah. He liked it pretty well. And I mean, it, Shakespeare's pretty accessible when you watch it acted, you know, it's just, it's, you know, people laugh at the right times, even if they don't get all the language and, and they know what's going on. So, you know, he really enjoyed it. That's really cool, man. And, and his, your, your, his grandfather, your great grandfather is from Montana and they're uh, Blackfoot, you said? Yeah, the original family story was that he came east from Montana with a male relative. I don't know what happened. I tried to do some research, you know, through Ancestry.com, and most Native Americans who are from out that way will not get tested by Ancestry.com. They won't give their DNA, so it's, it's pretty hard to trace them that way. But I was able to at least find out that during the time that my great-grandfather came east, to Ohio, uh, to southeastern Ohio, 
um, there was a famine out there. So probably that's why he came and probably his, his mother had died and he was traveling with a male relative to come here. That's interesting. Wow. He was eventually adopted by somebody in uh, Meigs County um, around Pomeroy and that's where he grew up. Okay. All right. And eventually your, your father, did your father move West? My father was born in Newport because that's where, um, that's where his mother eventually ended up living, Newport, Kentucky, which is right across the river from Cincinnati. Okay, cool, cool. Um, so your publishing is experiencing a, an awesome upswing. I mean, it's, it's pretty dramatic. You started, your first chapbook came out in 2014, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and this year you're publishing not just two, but your first full-length collection. So what led to that? What led to publishing poetry specifically and what intensified your focus on it? Um, I started taking practice of poetry classes from Pauletta Hansel, who you're probably um, familiar with. Paula was wonderful. Yeah, she was, she was our first poet laureate in Cincinnati. Um, and I started taking her classes at Grailville, which is like a, a community um, north of Cincinnati. It was a a lay community of Catholics who'd come over from Germany at some time. And the Grail is some uh, association of women, basically lay women who were Catholic. So she was the director there for a while and had really uh, got interested in offering writing classes and art classes, various classes. So I took her practice of poetry there. And then I started noticing that poets seemed to publish about the same schedule that my, my uh, trio would record songs usually about every three years we'd have enough songs we think okay time to go to the studio time to make an album so we would do that and i thought well i guess that's what poets do so i was driven by the same idea that after you had so many poems you should put them out there somewhere and uh, i saw other poets around me doing that so i submitted some of them to a finishing line and roughly every three years uh published something <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, and so this year, cause you have a lot this year, is there, were you writing a lot more in the last, like during COVID or the last? Exactly. Exactly. Because I couldn't really go anywhere and, you know, play anywhere in my trio or go to retreats and write songs like I was used to doing. Um, I read a whole lot of poetry and I was on a lot of online poetry groups um, where we would critique each other. So I, I wrote way more than I normally would. And then I got involved in online. Uh, it started out to be an in-person, um, the poetry gauntlet at Carnegie Center in Lexington, where you you write, you meet every month, and you the goal is to write 100 poems for a year. So I decided, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to write 100 poems. And when we started out, uh, we were going to meet in person, and it was all going to be really fun. And then we ended up having to do the entire thing, except for one class online. But it was a very good experience for me to be in that group of people who had decided they were going to write 100 poems um, in 12 months. Yeah. Really that must have writing. been a big change in focus from like the three-year cycle. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, poetry is something you can do by yourself, you know, while you're, while you're uh, locked in or when you can only walk around your yard or your neighborhood and can't really be with other people all the time. But it was sure nice to have other people online to talk to about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Zoom was wonderful for that. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of theater friends who, you know, it was 
mortifying for them because that's I bet. ensemble in person mm-hmm. thing you know yeah it's, it's it's a bummer well and it's it's lucky for you that you got that because also i have a lot of writer friends who are like ah, i'm uninspired everything's terrible the world's falling apart you know so it's like that that sort of thing too where a lot of people were driven the opposite direction just yeah it was tough I kind of went the opposite with songwriting. I didn't write any songs during uh, the pandemic. I think I wrote one and I just made myself do it. <laughs> <laughs> so before, before COVID, were you writing songs and, and poetry at about the same clip? Um, no, not really. I think I was writing more poetry than song because the song tended to be uh, prompt related. It's really crazy. I'd have to go to my retreat in North Carolina, where I go every, where I went every year, annually, and, you know, we would get our prompts, and we'd write our songs, and I will always leave the mountain with at least three or four songs, and it's more inspiration to carry me through the year, mm-hmm. um, so I was probably writing more poetry than songs for a while. Okay, did the mountain retreat, it had, did they, do they have musicians there, like, working? With yes, you? it's called uh, Sola Tido, and it's in North Carolina, um, near, little Switzerland up on a mountain and a bunch of us just go there. We have um, a very talented composer um, pianist who will accompany us on our new songs when we get them written. But we just come in every morning and the instructor gives us a prompt and we go back to our cabins, write songs for about a couple hours and then come back and share them. Um, We do that for three days in a row. And on the fourth day we give a concert for the other writers who are on the mountain with our brand new songs that we just wrote which is kind of crazy but we're so used to it that it's just it's just a um i don't know it it just forces the creativity when you've got the schedule and you know that you're going to come up with that many songs and that you're all going to perform them brand new songs so yeah well and you also said you said yourself in in this interview you said like hey the music comes before the words do so it, mm-hmm. it probably that i'm sure that helps quite a bit you know yeah um so let's talk about underscore leaping up from chapbook to full-length collection because chapbooks are more self-contained and i <laughs> i did one this year and it was like it was easier in the sense that it's it's so much more hyper-focused you can you can m- throw out all the riffraff much easier so how did the process go for you putting underscore together it took a couple of years and I threw out a whole bunch of stuff <laughs> <laughs> and I sent it to a lot of different places and they didn't like it. And I just thought, well, maybe I need some help. So I did talk to a, a few friends of mine and, and Pauletta in particular uh, gave me some advice. She just looked at the pile of poems I had and she said, these are for somewhere else. <laughs> she just pulled some of them out and these are for somewhere else. She said, work with these. So then I just worked with the ones that she had in her okay pile. These all seemed to go together. And then uh, really looked at how I wanted to organize it. Some of the poems are from earlier chapbooks, but a whole lot of them weren't. A whole lot of them were from the new writing that I did during the pandemic. And some of them are very pandemic driven, but not all of them. And I finally decided that I wanted them to have something to do with music. Um, So I divided the book into sections. It had to do with plain song is the first section, and it has to do with the music that's inside. Um, Solo with instrument, that has to do with the music and um, in concert with those closest to me, like my immediate family, like my mom and dad and my sister poems would be there. Uh, Scored for orchestra is me with a larger group 
like society. And then of the spheres, of course, is me trying to consider what else is around me that's much bigger than myself. I just divided the poems into those sections and then, you know, tried very much to to make them uh, segue into each other. Okay. And what's the thread that holds them all together, would you say? Well, the thread is finally what ended up being the title underscore um, is like the music that, you, you know, that you would have under a video would be the underscore that's a technical term for um what you might have under a video but also it's uh it it has a double meaning in what you might underline or emphasize in your life that's really important so i guess what runs through it is what runs through my life in general and that's the music okay that that makes that makes perfect sense because mm-hmm. you that the collection is described as instead of looking up at the cadences we underline and define as our own you know, it's it's looking inward instead. Were you looking up before you wrote this? Um, that came particularly from the, the poem that I had that was called Gravity near the end of the book. Um, I don't know. I think I was looking out for sure at all the things around me. And you tend to look up when you do that at, how, at the huge, you know, the universe and the galaxies and all that stuff. It's so hard to even comprehend. And sometimes to understand all that vastness, I think we have to start by looking in a little bit. Okay. That's cool. That's, that's actually beautiful. It's not just cool. <laughs> so you had a, you had a term, you, because <laughs> you had a COVID poem in there where you're railing against the word unprecedented because I hate, I hate the phrase, Oh, in these trying times, you heard that like a thousand times, Yeah. <laughs> but you had, you had an acrostic where you, where you, you're going after the word unprecedented. You said, why is everyone so eager to utter words that cloak our grief in borrowed cloth? How did you feel? Like, what, what do you, what do you want people to know about COVID? Like if somebody's reading this collection 15 years from now and they're coming back and looking at that, what do you want that? What do you want their takeaway to be? I got really upset with the whole idea of um, unprecedented. It's so Latin. It's so Latin. <laughs> and it, it's, and so I tried really hard in that poem you're mentioning to make as many of the words in it as Anglo-Saxon as possible. Okay. That's why I borrowed cloth, you know, instead of, uh, instead of, and I think there's something about uh, pull from your throat, a ruin for uh, silence, maybe. I don't know. I was trying really hard to go at the, the root of when you're trying to talk about something really important, you can't always just use a Latin term like unprecedented and keep using it and using it and using it. You know, it just gets worn out. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think any of the COVID terminology at this point, mm-hmm. everyone's sick of. <laughs> Whether or not they're sick of the experience, they're definitely sick of the jargon. <laughs> yeah, like the social distance. You know, what it means is we can't touch, we can't hug. You know, we can't do all those things that we're used to doing. Yeah, yeah. What do you want people to know about this collection? Ah, uh, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry right now. I'm just like, I mean, I'm speechless about it. Um, That's okay. And it's totally fine to just throw something like, you know, you're not just throwing something you're throwing your, your full length collection. You're throwing a, you know, a big piece of yourself, but it's okay to toss that out there and say, make what you want of it. You know, mm-hmm. 
So regarding your chapbook, your chapbook has not been released yet. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Um, that one came um, out of the, a lot of the writing that I did uh, for the gauntlet, especially a lot of the poems that are about my father. And they came um, also from poems where I asked questions. I just kept asking questions and I thought, well, maybe that's something that can tie them all together. So I ended up calling the, the collection Asking Price and used as an anchor poem um, in the chapbook. Um, a poem about when I bought, when we bought this house that we live in, how we had to, how we had to give the asking price to the guy who was selling it because he didn't really want to leave. He just didn't really want to leave. And he kept trying to sell us everything. He tried to sell us the refrigerator and the basement and the tractor. And the realtor just kept saying, you know, he just walks away from all the closings. He really doesn't want to leave here. So we gave him the asking price because we knew that was the only way we were going to get the house. And so I use that as the anchor poem, but all the poems in the chapbook ask some kind of question. They're about questions. All the poems are. Okay. Uh, like like what? Um, like <laughs> when my grandniece asked me, "Why do we never see a live armadillo?" She asked me that question, so I start. I have a poem that's called "Why do we never see a live armadillo?" <laughs> and she wanted to know about what eats what in the world. She started asking me about why my puppy was uh, tied on a a leash and why she wasn't running free. And I said, "Well, because there's so many things here that can eat her." Uh, you know, like hawks and um, foxes, if there are enough of them, or a coyote. And I was starting, and she started being really worried about what eats what. She wanted to know <laughs> what eats ants, finally. So then I told her about armadillos, and then I had, happened to have a stuffed armadillo that I was a high school teacher. People gave me weird stuff. Uh, <laughs> we read a prayer for Owen Meany, so one of my students decided I really needed a stuffed armadillo. So I brought the armadillo out to show her what eats ants, and she was touching it and everything. She just kept eating, asking all kinds of questions about nature. So that became a poem, you know, just her asking about the armadillo and about what eats what in this world. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. So they all ask questions. Um, what do you want people to know about you as a writer? Um, that I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm doing here, what we're all doing here, um, what it means. I mean, that's that's why we write, usually write. And um, I used to write songs because a feeling would come over me and I would just have to write a song. For For poems, it's more... There's something I need to know, and by writing about it, I hope to get closer to it. I hope to understand it better. Okay, that's fascinating because it, it's it's interesting because it you know I, your poetry each each collection is so self-contained and each thing explores a different idea that's so separate and it does it in different ways, which is why I think your writing is interesting. Um, do you think it's possible to just like write free of identity? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I can do that. I mean, I feel like even when I'm asking a question, it's asking a question in a framework. That's, that's me. <laughs> you know, that I don't mm -hmm. know. 
Yeah, it's it's certainly informed by your experiences, but it's it can also, I think, you know, I think so, you know, some people write and they're like, this is I am this kind of writer, you know. Whereas your your writing is just I'm exploring an idea and I'll explore it. And when I'm done, I'll just move on to the next thing. And it's it's almost like slices of your life. And it's like this is what Roberta was interested in for this period of time, you know. Throughout your life, have you had different periods where you're just like, I was into crocheting when I was 32 <laughs> and football when I was 35 and space when I was 37? Like, is it, can you can you point to different eras of Roberta's life? Um, well, there was the brief time when I was a, a clogger. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, I dropped out of that. They were too serious. They were really expecting me to practice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. I often told my students uh, when I taught high school that poets were amazed, and that was the main thing. They're just amazed by what they see, uh, what they hear, what they smell, what they taste. And if they wanted to know what a poet was like, that these are just people who are amazed. And I'm finding myself to be more and more amazed by what I see and what I taste and what I smell. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm always interested. I'm more interested now in um, what's out there in the world that I didn't know about before. Like what what particular kind of tree is that and why is it suddenly growing on my hillside and where did it come from and how come everybody's calling it invasive when it's been here since 1700 you know <laughs> yeah yeah i'm more interested in that kind of thing now is just you know the world around me and okay what what things really are that i hadn't noticed before sure and and how did your how did your students shape your writing Oh, wow. I have a couple of poems in the book about them. Um, teach, I don't, have you ever taught high school? Not high they're, school. I uh, taught yeah. undergrad. Yeah, they are, they are really, really hilarious for the most part. And they're demanding and very interesting people. And uh, the last five years I taught in particular, I taught um, AP English. And they just had so many questions about everything. And I don't know, I, I really, really, um, I, I was definitely shaped by them. <laughs> <laughs> did, did they make you a more questioning person? They made me a more questioning person. They made me a very sarcastic person sometimes. They made me somebody who could really take a joke. You know? <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I am grateful to them. <laughs> <laughs> in, your, in the first poem you read, you said... You, you had described how many cicada shells you had left behind, personally. Um, what kind of cicada shells did you leave behind? Wow, you're asking some hard questions. <laughs> I, I, I'm so intrigued by your poem. I can't wait to see a text of it. I'm really, really excited. <laughs> I, I left, I don't know. I, I think I left behind the person who's, who's really worried about whether or not I could be at the front. Um, that's been a problem for me my whole life. It's like, maybe I'm missing out, you know, maybe I can't, I can't be the best at this, but I, I'm starting to be a person who can leave behind that husk and not worry about it, to, to see the beauty and singing along with everything, you know, and, and having a life that, that was uh, useful and not wasted and um, always, 
always being a part of the buzz, always making that cicada sound, you know, yeah. with others. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, cicadas only make those sounds every X yeah. number of years, you know, <laughs> the 17 years get guys have a raw deal because they only get heard once every 17 years. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> there are some singing now, but they're none of that 17 year brood. <laughs> do you know what, do you know what cycle it is? No. Okay. I mean, I don't know either. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you have a poem to, do you want to read to bring us home? Yeah, I hadn't really had a poem about my mother. And um, you asked me about some of the things I learned from her. Well, this is one of the things I learned from her. It's a poem from my book, Touchstones, and uh, was inspired by Manuel Iris, uh, who was also a poet laureate for Cincinnati, because he was very upset that his daughter had just got her ears pierced at age one, I think, I think, because a lot of people in the Latin community do that. And he was upset by it. You know, how could his perfect baby have pierced ears already? So <laughs> when I heard him talk about that, then I needed to write about my own earring story. <laughs> Clip-ons. One. My mother told me that her Aunt Loretta was a loose woman. She shared this as we sat on the front stoop under the one remaining shade tree along 12th Street. I don't recall the kind of tree. Newport spoke a different language then, where trees sufficed most of the time, since trees were categorized good or bad, depending on what they did or didn't drop into gutters and downspouts. I do remember the smell of armpits in summer heat, which may or may not translate into Chinese chestnut in my new tongue. I asked my mother what made Aunt Loretta loose, because I'd never heard anyone described that way in my limited schoolyard lingo. My mother planted a seed in the soil of my unwashed ears, where presumably potatoes would grow if I didn't use the wash rag like my grandma babe taught me. My mother whispered into this fertile garden that Aunt Loretta had pierced ears. Her eyes widened to indicate that the next words offered more scandal and ran around on Mount Adams. She released this secret in a mist of sighs. And so, I never pierced my ears. Two. My sister combs the bins at yard sales to bring me costume jewelry from a time gone by. Clusters of blossoms climb the trellis of my earlobe. Lion-head door knockers guard the garden path. Large dangly globes sparkle and swing reflections at the summer moon. Three. No one else heeds my mother's fable, including my mother. We bury her in cherished diamond studs. My sisters flank the coffin in tasteful pearl posts. The only granddaughter's ear completely bordered in silver, her entire arm a tattooed masterpiece. I alone stand sentry in the shade where dual lions bear indignant teeth. Wonderful. All right. Well, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. 
Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And Roberta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you.